For any of you who were with us last week, Martin Sanders shared very, um, very meaningfully from his own story, addressing the topic of what do you do when life doesn't make sense and God seems silent? And he had this quote that I've just been thinking about all week. God knows things that I don't. And we need to trust that. Two weeks ago, he challenged us to leave behind what he called an orphan spirit. It's kind of a mindset of, of not having enough, of not having your needs met, of feeling a lack of centeredness in the Lord. And he said that when we don't experience the safety and acceptance and love that God offers, we miss out on this amazing intimacy and experience with the Lord. Norflet started our series on prayer three weeks ago, and he talked about how God is near to us. He is a help. I love this quote from Flett's talk. When we pray, we give God permission to intervene in our lives. Isn't that great? And then we've had the Tuesday nights. I heard Stacy's presentation on hearing God's voice, and the takeaway I had from that was, that God wants us to ignite a fire in the spirit of his people to eagerly desire to seek him and to know him. Well, today I've been asked to tackle the question, revelation. We not only pray to God and we ask questions of God, but God reveals himself to us. And so the question this morning is this. What is God trying to reveal to you? Before we jump into the main passage, I've had an incredible experience just looking at all the verses in the Bible. If you do a search on your phone or if you go to Bible Gateway, I just reveal and look at the passages. It's incredible the various ways and the amount of times that God is revealing his heart and his, his message to his people. In fact, the last book of the Bible is called The Revelation. This is how it starts. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. So we have a whole book, which is God's revelation from Jesus. The book of Hebrews starts this way. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. One of the prophets, it's a short little book called Amos, says this, surely the Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. And then I really love this, this phrase that Jesus gave in Matthew 11. He said, Father, you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. A few chapters later, Jesus was talking to the disciples and kind of saying, you know, what's the story? I mean, what are people saying about who I am? And then he says, how about you? What do you you think? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says this, Simon, blessed are you, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, has given you the ability to comprehend who I am. And then in John 15, it's the last day that Jesus is with his disciples before he's crucified. And he says, 
No longer do I refer to you as servants because the servant doesn't know his master's business. But I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. So as we begin, I hope you feel encouraged. The very fact that you're a believer or the fact that you're here seeking to learn more about God is evidence that God has been revealing something to you because you can't have faith in him and understand him without God's revelation. So as we begin, I'd like to pray, and I'd like to ask you to have this be your prayer to God in our next moments together. Lord, in the past few weeks, what have you been trying to reveal to me? Would you open our minds and our hearts to hear what your Spirit wants us to hear? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you read through the Gospels, you notice that Jesus' revelation was both attractive to some and offensive to others. If you were one of the broken, hurting, marginalized, sick, or just generally aware of your sinfulness, you tended to like Jesus because he brought you hope and he, you gave, he gave you a sense of dignity in the midst of your pain and your suffering. But if you happen to be someone who fancied yourself to be holy and righteous or maybe more holy and more righteous than others, his words often offended. And as we'll see this morning, his words, his revelation was often missed. As we read our passage this morning, I'd like to ask you to just put yourself into the passage. We're going to look at five different groups of people that interact with Jesus as Jesus gives this revelation. And it wouldn't surprise me if everyone in this room will fit into one of those five categories. And when we're done, we're going to try to position ourselves to merely say, Lord, will you show me what you're trying to reveal to me right now with what's going on in my life? We're going to be reading from the Gospel of John, verse chapter 9. Group 1, the disciples, the followers of Christ. And the passage starts this way. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind. And Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. What is revealed to the disciples? Well, first, what's revealed is that their basic bias of life, that there's this cause and effect, it was incomplete. It's a little surprising to me that having been with Jesus for a while, they would still think this way. Whose fault is it? And why would you think that a baby in a womb could be the reason that he's born blind? Like, what, what mindset would cause that? And Jesus said, it's as if you don't even understand what I'm about. Because it's about what God's kingdom wants to look like as we come into the world and into the problems. You know, we've talked about this many times. We are a church striving to live like Jesus. How did Jesus live? It says that Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil. The disciples did not realize the options before them. Imagine if you were there with Jesus and you heard him say that. It's not because of his sin or his parents, but that God's works might be displayed. What do you think your next question would be? 
I think mine would have been, well, how do I know which it is? How do I know when I'm in a situation if I'm supposed to be expecting to bring a miracle or if it's just cause and effect? And Jesus would have said, didn't you hear what I said four chapters earlier in chapter 5? Where Jesus said this, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees his father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him and reveals to him all that he is doing. Well, how do you know? I think sometimes it happens like this. I was recently going through some of my files um, from a transaction that we had been invested in, and I found a, a note from a friend of mine I was involved with from several years ago, and it just captured my heart as I reread what he had written to me. He was a skier when he was younger, and he had been on a, the national team, and he had had lots of friends, and this was a friend he had met that wasn't a believer, and this is what he wrote. He said, seven years ago, the six-year-old son of a friend of mine was killed by a drunk driver. My wife and I went to the funeral in Traverse City. And in the morning of the funeral, I was reading in John chapter 11 in my devotions. John 11 is the story where Lazarus dies, and four days after he's been in the grave, Jesus brings him back to life. And it's a huge you know, plus for Jesus' popularity as everyone's like, oh my gosh, that's, that's incredible. He said, I couldn't get out of my mind. What would I do if my child was killed in an accident? He said, I think I would pray, God, would you bring my son back to life? As they were discussing um, this, he said, I wonder if my friend has anyone in his life besides us that believe in Jesus and can give him hope of heaven. He said, I sat in the funeral and I just had this sense that I was supposed to get up and say something and maybe even pray that this boy would come out of the coffin. And I was starting to get a little nervous. He was, I think the only one more nervous than me was my wife. Like, are you kidding me? You can't do that. And he said the, the minister was kind of, you know, just talking. There was no real life in what he was saying, but he spoke from John 11. And again, he just had this battle with God. Like, I'm, I'm not going to do that. And he finally said, God, I'll tell you what. If the pastor invites someone to come and speak, I'll take that as a cue that I'm supposed to do it. And two minutes later, he stopped and said, is there anyone that has anything they'd like to say? <laughs> he says this. I had no idea what I was going to say. I just knew that as I sat in the pew, the presence of the Spirit was so strong on me that if I did not get up, I didn't know what would happen. I did. I was bawling. I told them there was hope in Christ. I wept. I asked them if they wanted to pray. But I did not boldly pray and ask God to heal that boy. I chickened out. I failed to be the conduit of the message in prayer. In his letter, he shared about a book he'd been reading about the revivals of the 20th century, and one of the comments that was listed was that there's no great move of God without great risk. And he said, Lord, give me another chance. So, sometimes, you just get a sense that God's stern in you. And maybe some of you have had that, and you've maybe been like my friend where you said, I'll go a little bit of the way, but I'm not that crazy. I'm not going to believe that you're going to do that. They're going to think I'm a total crazy person, which most people probably already think we're somewhat crazy. So the followers, they asked the wrong question of Jesus, and they didn't bring the paradigm that maybe God wants to bring his kingdom into the circumstances. 
The second person, the recipient of the miracle. Can you imagine being born blind? It says this. Having said these things, Jesus spat on the ground and he made mud with a saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and he said, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and he came back seeing. Now that's a revelation we'd all like to have, isn't it? No longer under a curse, no longer having to beg, really knowing God loves me. He's just done something. Who's, who's ever heard of that before? It's interesting to me that there's no indication here that Jesus first said, now repent, confess all your sins, and once you've demonstrated you're worthy of my gift of healing, then I'll heal you. He just gives him a simple instruction. You know, a few weeks ago, uh, my niece graduated from high school in New York, and we went for the uh, graduation for the weekend, and one of the things she and everyone wanted to do was go shopping. So we took the subway down to Soho, down in a kind of cheaper district to shop in New York, and Spent the day shopping, not my favorite activity. After going to the, you know, 15th store or whatever, we finally hit a store with this awesome huge bench right by the front. And I was like, oh, thank you. Sat down, is on my phone, checking the sports scores. And I noticed I was sitting next to this Middle Eastern woman. And I'd never seen this before, but she had her phone and she was texting in Arabic. And it just kind of was like, I never thought, like, they have an alphabet and you hit the squiggle and it squiggles. And I just was a little maybe too nosy, just like, wow, that's cool. So I picked up a conversation with her, and I'm not usually the conversational kind of person. And she said, yeah, I just flew in from Iran uh, a couple days ago. Um, I have a child that works in New York here, and she's like, I'm sitting because my, my knees are just so hurting me. It's unbelievable. And I just, I had this picture that came into my mind of that video I shared a couple years ago of Heidi Baker being in somewhere and praying for a Muslim to be healed. And I just, for whatever reason, I just said, you know, would you mind if I just prayed for your knee, I believe that Jesus still heals. And she said, that'd be great. So I prayed for her knee, and I was kind of thinking, this is going to be great sermon material, you know? I could have some of this shit. <laughs> Nothing happened. And I was like, oh. <laughs> so I did what anyone in my situation would do. I texted my wife. I said, Mel, I need some help. When you come out, will you pray for this lady? So I, despite my failure in having God's presence change this lady's life, I said, you know, my wife just went to this healing conference, and it's, I don't quite get it, but when she prays for people, like I just did it, it, God works more powerfully. Would you let her just pray for you? When she came out, so a few minutes later, Melissa came out and she prayed for the lady. And it was, this, it was one of the best experiences of my life. This lady just, oh my goodness, she stood I don't feel pain for the first time. And it was like amazing. I didn't share the gospel with her. She didn't repent and come to Christ. But I just sensed, God, this is exciting. I could live like this. What has God been trying to say to you? What has his revelation been like to you? Or what's he wanting to say today? The third group are what I call the onlookers. It's the neighbors. And it, we read this. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, isn't this the man that used to sit and beg? Some said it is. Others said, no, it's, he just looks like him. But the man kept saying, I'm the man. So they said, well, then how were your eyes open? He said, the man called Jesus, made mud, anointed my eyes and said, go wash in Siloam. So I went and washed and I received my sight. They said, where is he? And he said, I don't know. So they brought the man to the Pharisees who had formerly been blind. These are the people that God's stirring. God's revealed something. Something's messing with their normal status quo, but they just can't quite figure it out. So they bring him to 
the religious people hoping for answers. And it appears in the story that almost every one of them missed what God was wanting them to get in their revelation. And what I learned from this is that God lets us learn at our own pace. He doesn't superimpose his will on us, even though he does often give us glimpses of his activity. Now, this is the part where we're going to kind of steer a little bit, and it's going to get maybe a little, a little bit uncomfortable for some. For a number of years now, our church leaders have been praying, God, would you do a new thing at Grace? Would you pour out your spirit and your presence in a powerful way? We've seen some pockets of God doing some amazing things, but it's, it's kind of just seemed like, as someone described it, it's almost like there's like a glass ceiling that it just seems to somehow keep out part of what God wants to pour in. And it seems to somehow prevent us from fully connecting with all that God would have us connect with. So many of us have been for some time saying, God, would you reveal to us what's going on? How do we really get ourselves more in line with what your best desire is for grace. And we've begun to have some sense of God revealing that. The first big thing he said is what I call the two-by-four construction metaphor. This is what Jesus said one day. He said, you know, stop trying to pick out the sawdust in others while you're walking around with a big two-by-four hanging out of your head. Once you realize and deal with your sins then and only then are you going to see clearly enough to even be of help to other people. And so that's a big part of what God's been doing in the leadership, is he's been pulling back the onion of our lives, and we've been trying to say, God, where are we blocking your spirit? Where are we religious but not really of spirit ourselves? And the second thing that seems to be getting a little bit clearer is that there just seems to be a culture that we've inherited maybe from our hundred years of being a Baptist church of, of kind of a religious, kind of a critical type of mindset at times. And with that in mind, listen as we look at this next group who received revelation, the Pharisees. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened the man's eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said, he put mud on my eyes, I wash, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, well, this man's not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others said, how could a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. So they again said to the blind man, well, what do you say about him since he's opened your eyes? He said, he's a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. This is the group that was slow to believe that the revelation was real. You see, their religious box said, it can't be a move of God because we know that Moses said, don't break the Sabbath. I think this is a big point to consider. God's revelation will not contradict Scripture. But what I've found is that God's revelation might contradict my current interpretation of Scripture. And I think this raises a really interesting point for this scenario we're looking at. If Jesus knows their religious box, why doesn't he just heal them on Friday? Why on Saturday? 
I mean, think about it. If he had just done it when they wouldn't have thought it would have been wrong, it could have been this huge revival. There could have been such a change of people's hearts. You see, I think sometimes Jesus knows that our religious system needs to get jarred to get us in touch with deeper things. As I share this next illustration, I'm just going to warn you up front, it's going to be a little uncomfortable for some of you. And listen carefully, I'm not sharing this because I'm trying to make a point about whether this is the correct interpretation of Scripture or not. I'm sharing it because it's been part of my own journey of identifying with what it's like to be a Pharisee and wrestle with how it seems that God might be working in a way that my box says illegal. And this is just one example. I could have given, I could talk for an hour. Things like drinking, things like how should my children dress at church? What's appropriate for singers to wear on stage? Should my kids be allowed to run up and down the stairs during pre-service prayer, or should they be sitting next to me folding their hands quietly? Should we have coffee and food in the sanctuary? The list is literally endless. So here's my illustration. When we got married eons ago, my wife was from a country church in Connecticut. Her pastor had been her pastor for her whole life, a dear old man, Nate Adams. Their church had an associate pastor who was a woman. As fate would have it, Pastor Adams had a heart attack and died a week before our wedding. The church wanted the pastor of residence to marry us, and I refused. I said, I'm not having a woman marry us. We flew in someone from Chicago. I was convinced to the core it was offensive to God that that was happening. And over the years, I've gotten to know some people that are female that feel a call from God. Some of them work with me in a ministry I was in. I've been exposed to people that speak. I showed you the video of Heidi Baker. And something has been gnawing at my heart for a while, and it's been this. Why would God do that when it's illegal? Why give that, why give that, spirit or that desire or that anointing if, if it says women shouldn't speak in church or they shouldn't teach or have authority. And what I've realized is that in a lot of my discussions I've had, I've been a lot more strong in my conviction than I think the Lord is happy with. And I wonder sometimes, have I put God in a box he doesn't intend to be? And might that jarring be something that will open us more to God's spirit? When something doesn't fit into the box, but it seems like God is at work, I think we would be wise to say, hmm, God, what are you revealing to me? Now we see his parents. This is an incredible scene. I mean, of all the people on the planet that you would think would be completely blown away and grateful that God gave their blind son eyes, you would think it would be the parents. They're the only ones that really know for sure who he was too, right? Here's what happens. So they bring in the parents, and the Pharisees ask him, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he see? His parents answered, we know it's our son. We know he was born blind, but how he now sees, we don't know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. 
Therefore his parents said, He is of age, ask him. I wonder if any of us might resonate with what it might be like to feel that to take a stand for what you know to be true could cost you that which is very dear, your reputation, your social standing. And what I learned from this passage with the parents is that God's not all that concerned about making it easy for us, is he? A Friday miracle, and they're scot clear. The Saturday miracle gets them on the fence, and they're having to risk their whole religious social life to do it. And, you know, as we went through a church without curtains, we were kind of inviting us into this, weren't we? Let's, let's begin to take down the, the curtains and the barriers, and let's begin to try to get a little bit more real. Instead of pretending we have it all together, let's be a little bit more vulnerable, and let's see if we can potentially, with God's help, truly grow together. Well, those are the five people groups, the followers, the disciples. Their bias was wrong, and in the midst of everyday life, God gives them clarity Another option is to hear and see what God wants to happen and and get on board with what that is. You've got the blind guy who's completely overjoyed that he's been healed. You've got the onlookers that know something has happened, but they're just kind of searching out what to do. You've got the religious establishment that it's almost like it's been set up on purpose to just shake them out of their religious box. And you've got the parents who evidence that they don't have a desire to really Follow God in a risky way. There's just a couple more insights that come out of the rest of this story. We pick up in verse 24. So the Pharisees now and the blind man. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. The blind man answered, Whether he's a sinner, I don't know. But one thing I do. I was blind and now I see. They said, Tell us now, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He said, I already told you, and you wouldn't listen. Why? Do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples? And they replied, we, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. The man answered, well, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone has opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they threw him out of the synagogue. This is, I think, another great insight into God's revelation. It's been the greatest learning point in my spiritual journey in the last five years. It's what I call trigger-based discipleship. What was the Pharisees' response to maybe a little bit of a disrespectful uh, tirade by the blind guy calling them out? They just got angry and kicked them out, right? I'm sure you've never done that, have you? Time after time, with my uh, oldest son going through adolescence, we would have these power-ups. I guess I'd have the power-up. I wasn't getting the action I wanted, so I just threatened. If that didn't work, I'd just hash out the discipline. If that didn't work, I'd just make it worse. And time after time, I'd go talk with my mentor, Steve, and I'd go, here's what happened this week. 
And he'd go, tell me, why did you do that? Is Jesus telling you to parent that way? It was like I didn't even have a frame of reference in the midst of my getting agitated to think, Jesus, what are you wanting me to do as a parent? So I'd like to ask you this. Maybe what God's wanting to have you be aware of, reveal to you, is just where have you been powering up lately? When has your anger been triggered? What's it been about? You know, a few years ago, I was coaching uh, Little League Baseball, and it's been one of my greatest joys to do that in. Um, I'm a little too competitive, for sure. Had this game one time where, uh, you know, we were winning, and, but the game's never over with little kids until it's over, right? So you got to always be pushing the pedal hard. And the other coach was getting a little mad at me because I was telling my kids where to go. I was just kind of being too competitive. And, and before long, he got really mad, and the umpire threw him out, and then the parents started all getting on my case about how competitive I am, and I don't care about the kids that aren't any good. I'm just about winning. And the next morning, I spent most of the morning lobbying, emailing my parents, hey, can you just tell me, do you feel like I'm loving your kid and helping them get better and all this stuff? And then, of course, I went and met with Steve, and he goes, well, what's God doing this couple weeks in your life? And I said, oh, here's an interesting one. And told him my story about how unfairly I'm being accused by other people in the community about being too competitive. And he just kind of sat there, and he said, Hmm. I got a question for you. Do you think Jesus would have spent his morning lobbying for support letters from parents? I got a better one for you. Do you think Jesus, if he was coaching, would have been so insensitive to the feelings of the other players and coaches that he would keep full pedal in the fourth inning up 15 runs like it's the bottom of the sixth tied up? never even entered my brain that I could have just been so full of myself that I was a stench to everyone around me, not representing Jesus well. In fact, a detractor from Jesus, I'm sure. So, maybe that'll be part of God's revelation to you. In the flare-ups of your life, what's God trying to teach you? When people are mad at you, there's probably a reason they're mad, and you're probably not as saintly as you think. And when you get upset and mad, and you're out of control and you power up, it's a great time to say, God, will you begin to show me what's, what's your perspective of this situation? Last scene. Jesus heard that they had cast the blind man out of the synagogue, and having found him, Jesus says to him, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he said, who is he, sir, that I can believe in him? Jesus said, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said, Are we also blind? And Jesus said, If you were blind, you would have no guilt, but now that you say you see your guilt remains. He gives the gift of sight without even once talking to him about faith. The guy doesn't even know who Jesus is. But after the revelation that the blind man had received, he speaks out for it, he gets kicked out, and at that point, then Jesus finds him and says, let me tell you more. It's as though your response to revelation has qualified you for further revelation. 
So, in this story, who are you most like? Are you like the disciples who are asking the wrong question, that your, your bias or your understanding is needing to be expanded? Remember what Flett taught us? When we pray, we invite God to, we give God permission to intervene. If this resonates with you, I'd like to encourage you in a few minutes to just say, God, would you replace my prejudices that I bring to situations with your revelation? Maybe you're like the blind man and, and God has shown up miraculously in your life. Our problems are opportunities for God to show up. You know, we have nearly a dozen people, I think, in our church now that in the last year, God has done a blind man-type experience. Backs have been healed. Clogged arteries have become unclogged. Scleroderma has been removed. And who knows, maybe someday, someone will even raise from the dead in a funeral service. I think for those of us who are like the blind guy, we need to say, God, I will declare boldly whatever it costs me, what you're doing in my life. And then some of us are the onlookers, the neighbors. Maybe you've been coming here for a while to church and you're not quite sure what it's all about, but when you come, you just sense that God is doing something in your spirit. And I'd like to ask you, what is God revealing to you, do you think? And then for the rest of us, imagine what would happen if all of us here who are followers of Christ in the next two months began to evidence in a genuine way the work of God's Spirit in our lives, not being more religious, but being more like Jesus. So that when it came time for us to invite people into our Alpha groups in the fall, people said, I'd like to be in that group because I've been trying to figure out what it is about you guys that seems different. For you neighbor-type people, these onlookers, I'd just like you to pray this. God, will you help me to get whatever it is you're revealing? Will you open my eyes to get it? For the parents, you know what God's done. He's stirred something. Maybe you're a little, little bit like my friend that has this kind of sense. I know I'm supposed to get up and say this, but if I get up in a funeral and ask a kid to raise, I'm going to be laughed out of town. I'm not willing to do that. Maybe some of us today just need to say, God, I'm sorry. I'm so, I'm so yearning for affirmation from people, and I'm so concerned about my image that I'm really... I'm really not risking much for you. And it wouldn't surprise me, given the history of our church, if we have some people that say, if I'm honest, I'm a little bit like the Pharisees. I think I have most of it figured out, and I tend to get really angry when things challenge what I believe. And maybe it's time for us to all say, God, would you free us from our boxes, and would you help us to really experience your revelation in our lives? One of the things that's been kind of challenging for me and kind of figuring out what I'm supposed to share this morning on Revelation is, yeah, I felt like I should probably really start tracking what it was God been saying to me. In my kind of normal reading, I came across a verse I'd seen before, and it, it's from uh, Deuteronomy 23, and it says this. Uh, Don't charge interest to other fellow Israelites. You can charge interest to foreigners, but to people that are a part of the family, don't charge interest to them. And, you know, we live in a world where... Someone's got a choice of borrowing on their line of credit on their house or coming to me for an interest-free loan. I'm going to go, well, you're a big boy. Borrow on your house, right? 
Well, I'd had a transaction where I'd loaned some money to a Christian, and I got paid back a few weeks ago, and had a, not an insignificant amount of interest in it. And um, I just felt like when I read that verse, God said to me, give him back the interest. And, you know, I didn't want to hear that. I was like, you got to be kidding me. That's like Old Testament stuff. And it's like every day I just kept feeling this sense like I'm supposed to send this guy his money back. So I wrote the check out and I wrote a note and addressed the envelope one day. And for whatever reason, I just left it on my desk for another few days. And I just, I was kind of like, like, are you kidding me? Like, why do I need to do this? I was talking to a friend of mine about it and I said, you know, isn't this kind of weird? I, I've never had this sense before. And the question he asked me just was unbelievably insightful. He said, well, maybe you should ask God why you're so hesitant to obey him. Maybe that's what this is about. And I realized there was some stuff in my heart that I needed to, there was some, I needed to forgive some stuff. I, there, was some, there was a reason why I was having a hardened heart. Next thing I know, I'm talking to someone who's thinking about doing some ministry thing, and I, and I started getting, and I was like, I don't think I want to go down here, God, because I might have to give all my money away if I really listen to you. <laughs> and I think I'd be remiss if I didn't at least just talk about this briefly. Some of you here who have been coming for a while and you're seeking, the biggest revelation of all is the revelation of Jesus and salvation. You know, it says in Romans that by obeying God's law, no one is going to get to heaven. In fact, the purpose of the law was to help you realize that it's kind of hopeless. But he says, but now a righteousness from God has been revealed from heaven that comes by faith. Maybe for some of you, it's your day to say, I'm going to respond to this revelation of a God that says religion is not a treadmill to try to be good enough to get into heaven. It's about a loving God who's seen us in our sin and loves us and says, I've died for your sins. Will you receive what I've given to you? You know, a couple weeks ago, I did an elder interview for an older woman who was joining our church, and her name is Rose McKinney. She died this week. See, the thing that we need to remember is that we never know when our last day is going to be. Over and over again, God's word says, today, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts, but respond. We're going to close with a song, and I'd like to just encourage you. Try to figure out before you go, what's God trying to say to you? Maybe some of you, it's just like there's something burning in your heart right now, like my friend had. During this song, if you want prayer, feel free to come down for prayer. If you want to stick around later afterwards. Because we want to help our church be a church that's not about rules and about boxes where we have everything figured out. But it's about a people that are letting God change us from the inside out. Let's sing.